And throughout um, this Easter time, we are going to spend some time looking at um, where Jesus meets us on the road. Um, and encountering the risen Christ on the road. Um, looking in parts of Luke and Acts, and then one um, time we'll go back and look at, look at John. And today we begin on uh, the road to a mess. It's Easter Day still in Luke. It comes in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. It's Easter Day still. It's in the afternoon of Easter. And two disciples are leaving uh, Jerusalem. And they're going towards this village called Emmaus. I invite you to um, listen to the word of our Lord. If you'd like to follow along, you may on page 90. It's in the New Testament section. Now... On that same day, two men, excuse me, on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. He said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, those whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that they have taken place in these days? He asked them, What things? And they replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who is a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. And they were at the tomb early this morning. And when they did not find his body there, they came back and they told us that they had indeed seen a vision of the angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it was just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe. All the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary? But the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory. Then begin with Moses and all the prophets. He interpreted to them the things about himself and all the scriptures. They came near the village to which they were going. He walked ahead as he was going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, he blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and their companions gathered there together. 
They were saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what they had happened on the road, and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Friends, the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. I recently saw a survey, and it said, it was determined, I guess, most Americans favor springtime above all other three seasons. Asked why springtime is a favorite, warmer weather was the number one answer. Uh, while others said they, they long, the longer days of sunlight and the lighter clothes and the hustle and bustle of people on the streets and in the parks. Surprisingly, though, um, you, maybe you can relate. Some even said it was the thrill of spring cleaning. Uh, while many spoke of the natural beauty and the growth of the earth, uh, like trees and flowers blooming, uh, planting seeds in the garden and walking, working out in the yard again. There's something about the, the springtime that just seems, well, natural. Uh, look at the grass turning green. The azaleas and the dogwoods are splashing the landscape around us with beautiful colors. Birds are greeting us in the mornings and bees are buzzing around working hard. Ted Worlaw knows that if we listen closely, we can imagine the sounds we hear as the sounds of Easter music served up by nature. During the church's most important and holy time, which conveniently collides with this renewal activity of nature. So effortlessly, it's a connection between our, our favorite season of the year, springtime, and Easter. Unless we're vigilant, we would succumb to thinking that the resurrection is as natural a thing as grass coming up green, as eggs cracking open to reveal chicks, as butterflies crawling out of cocoons. And as beautiful as this coincidence is, there's something deceptive about it, too. Because if we think about it, what we see is there's, that there is nothing about the resurrection that is natural. And perhaps uh, this is why it's so hard for disciples to, to recognize the risen Christ. It's often just, well, too unnatural. Uh, but these two disciples were not the only ones. Mary Magdalene mistook him as a stranger working in the garden. Peter mistook him as a stranger asking about fishing. Cleopas, along with his unnamed disciple, whom we read about this morning, mistook Jesus as a stranger walking down a strange road. And I wonder, for you and me on this morning, how often do we mistake the risen Christ to be a stranger on some strange road that we find ourselves traveling down? Perhaps that strange road comes as a, a failure for some of us, something that we're not used to experiencing. For others of us, it's, it's a discovery of a disease. And for others, the death of a friend. For others, it's the loss of a relationship. 
And perhaps for others, it's not about us at all, but you find yourself in an uncomfortable, unnatural, strange road, if you would, where the conversation moves from politics to finances to race relations to someone else's grief. And notice how Jesus meets these two disciples in their grief. In verse 17, it says that they stood still. Jesus never says, come on with me, you got to get over it now. No, instead, it just says they stood still. I imagine they stood there for as long as it took. Then notice the next line. They asked Jesus, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who doesn't know what had happened? This is what happens in our grief. We walk into Fulan, we see strangers going on about their day, and we want to yell out with the top of our lungs, what are you doing? How can you keep on going? Don't you know? Don't you know my husband left me last night? My sister, she died this morning. I just left the lawyer's office and I filed for bankruptcy. Don't you know? My cancer's back. The Savior doesn't cause our grief no more than Jesus caused his own death. But our Savior's there. Even when that event that we're going through just seems so unnatural. Fred Craddock, I said there are three times in which to know an event. You know an event in rehearsal, at the time of the event, and in remembrance. Rehearsal is what we do here week on and week out in this room right here. Sure, we come here to give thanks and worship God, but really God brings us here to this unnatural place to participate in singing very unnatural songs, to say liturgy that doesn't seem very natural. Others may look at us weird as we ask for forgiveness in our prayers and we pray for others and read ancient texts and to give our money away, not expecting anything out of return, but we give it away 100% out of gratitude. It's not always natural to listen to sermons given by people in black robes who look very unnatural wearing them. And we come to this table believe in a small piece of bread and a small cup of juice will somehow transform us. No matter how diligent we are with our rehearsal, equipping us for an upcoming event to encounter the risen Christ out there in the world, our rehearsal is often hindered in a way by our inability to believe that this event will actually take place. Or just simply comprehend the importance of it. But God calls us back here time and time and time again, equipping you and me to encounter something so unnatural as a risen Christ. With all the practice, don't be surprised that the moment of the event, our hearts are too slow to recognize the stranger that is Christ. Nadia Bowles-Weber is an unconventional, tattooed Lutheran pastor 
She started a church in Denver, Colorado. And it's a diverse congregation, um, accepting people who are often strangers everywhere else but that congregation. After Hurricane Katrina a few years back um, was devastated, uh, New Orleans, like many, Nadia wanted to make a difference. Her congregation sponsored a, a family displaced by Katrina, providing an apartment and other resources. They helped a woman named Anne Marie, who was eight months pregnant, and Anne Marie's father. The church surrounded them with support and care. When the woman goes into labor, the church is there. When the mother needs help with this brand new baby, the church is there. Then Anne Marie disappears. For Nadia, things just didn't add up. Then Nadia receives a phone call late one night and a panicked Anne Marie on the phone. She said, it's me, Anne Marie, we're in trouble. You have to help us. Nadia rushes to the location. When she arrives, Anne-Marie begins to tell her the truth. Her name is not Anne-Marie. Her name is Ashley. She is not fleeing from New Orleans. She is from Denver. The man that claimed to be her father put her up to the scam. He isn't her father. He is her pimp. And the father of the baby. She wants to get away from him. And Nadia naturally is angry, having been lied to. She, she kept thinking of all the money that the church had been given to help, uh, quote-unquote, those victims from New Orleans. Reluctantly, her better nature responds. She calls the police, who got Anne-Marie and her daughter into a shelter for battered women. And Nadia never saw them again. That Sunday... She had to tell the congregation what had happened. She felt terrible. And outlined a scam in painful detail. It was such an embarrassment. Such a failure. Afterward, one of the older women in the church came up to her and said, God has a glorified way in all of this, hasn't God? We don't pick how God works. Who knows if Anne-Marie would have ever had the courage to leave if she didn't receive the love that she had over the past months. Maybe now they know that they are worth more than the life they've always had. In the moment, in that moment, for most of us, it's often hard to see that risen Christ. Often it's too confusing. It's too busy. But it's also unnatural for most of us to match our heart and our mind together. On one hand, our mind yearns for certainty. Certainty that no one will ever take advantage of us. Certainty that our loved ones who have died are safe. Certainty that our calling, our way of life, our hunger for justice, and everything that we believe is true. If we could just trade places, we say, if we could just trade places with Mary Magdalene or Thomas and, and touch the holes in his hands. But we can't. We're not Mary Magdalene. We're not Thomas. We're more like those two disciples walking down this unnatural road.
struggling to make sense of everything that we have rehearsed, yearning for certainty. But we can't have certainty. If so, Craig Barnes warns, it would destroy our relationship with God, certainty. Because the Savior insists on bounding us together, not with certainty, but with love. And love, by definition, is a choice. It's a decision, it's an act of will. It's a commitment. On the cross, Jesus spreads out his arms and says, I will always love you, or always forgive you. Even when you deny it, even when you run from it, I will always give you eternal life. Our faith is looking back at Jesus and saying, I love you too. Certainty is control. Certainty removes choice. Certainty removes faith. Certainty removes love. Then on the other hand, so often our, it's our heart that finds everything that we know in our mind to be way too unnatural. This is the case with the disciples. Jesus says to them, how slow of heart to believe. And then Jesus interprets the scripture to them. Notice that Jesus doesn't introduce them to scripture. Jesus interprets the scripture. Jesus is reminding us. It's one thing to know scripture. It's one thing to know the facts and to know the dates, to be able to quote a, a text here and there. But it's another thing to find the risen Christ in the Word. Fast forward a little bit in this chapter, the disciples reflect on this experience. And they remember and they say to one another, Were our hearts not burning within us while we're walking down the road? While he was opening up the scriptures to us. It's often in that remembrance, beyond the non seriousness of rehearsal, beyond the business of the event, that our hearts and our minds come together and we recognize the risen Christ as we remember this unnatural event during a visit in a hospital, a conversation at a dinner table. An unnatural event with a trip to a friend, with a friend, or an encounter with a stranger, turn Christ. On an unnatural road, turn table. In just a few moments, we'll be able to participate in this table. At this unnatural event where rehearsal and the event and the remembrance all are met together. In this sacrament that we call the Eucharist, the place where, we, where the disciples and our eyes are open to the risen Christ. It's a meal that begins with an act of hospitality. It's a meal that begins with an invitation to a stranger. It's a meal that begins with us preparing a table. But look what happens. In the presence of Christ, that stranger takes this unnatural meal and transforms it into a sacrament. In essence, Christ the guest, Christ the stranger, becomes the host. 
becomes the preparer of the table. And he breaks the bread and he pours the cup and he shares to all those that are present this unnatural meal, bringing together the word and sacrament, which equips you and me to go into the world and experience the risen Christ in the most unnatural places, making all of us first-generation Christians. In our meeting place, Emmaus. Johnny Dunlop is a minister from Scotland. He told a story that he was in an infantry in the British Army World War II. His unit was surrounded and eventually captured and ended up in a Poland prison war camp. He was, it was a dreadful, cold, wet, filthy experience. And worst of all, there was almost no food. Just a bowl of thin soup and a scrap of bread once a day. Prisoners lost weight until they were skin and bones. They contracted diseases and began to die. And, and war was not going very well at all for the Allies. And there didn't seem to be any reason at all for hope. But as the tide began to turn and Germany's fortunes uh, diminished, interestingly enough, the conditions in the prisoner of war camp grew worse until some prisoners didn't even want to go on living. One easy way to end it all, Dunlop said, was to throw oneself up against a barbed wire fence as if they're trying to escape, then instantly all the guards would shoot them dead. Johnny said one night, deeply discouraged, depressed, and sick, with despair and hunger, he slipped out of his barracks and walked into, toward that fence, not quite sure whether he ought to just simply end it all right there or not. He sat down on a small grassy space in the prison yard, contemplating his next decision. And then he sensed a movement in the dark. On the other side of that barbed wire fence was a Polish farmer. He had um, half a potato in his hand, and he thrust the potato through this barbed wire fence. As Johnny Dunlop took it, the man said in heavily accent in English, the body of Christ. And at that same hour, those two disciples returned to the only place that they could, home, where once again, equipping themselves by equipping others as they remember this unnatural event this unnatural place with an unnatural encounter with the risen Christ who stops at nothing for you and for me to remember. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.